We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Live from the Rogers Center in Toronto. Oh, wait. Instead, we're live from the Castiglione Compound in Fort Myers, Florida with Clorox-wiped microphones. We've got a 10-foot XLR we are socially distancing, but we want to stay in touch with Red Sox fans. Welcome to the, the first of what we hope will be many episodes of a podcast we're going to call Extended Spring, Will and Joe. And uh, Joe, I don't know about you, but uh, you know this has all been a very difficult period for all of us. But I found that today has been the hardest day of all by far, and it's not even close for me. When you think about where we would be, where we should be in Toronto, it is lovely to be here with you, but to me, it is really hitting home today, the impact of all that is going on in our world. Well, it certainly is, Will. I mean, we should be uh, getting ready for the American League season in Toronto and and then the home opener coming up against the White Sox April 2nd, but uh, quite obviously that's not going to happen then either. I do remember, of course, in uh, 95 with the delayed opening day, but at least by the time opening day was upon us, the originally scheduled opening day, we knew the season would resume because uh, Judge Sotomayor had uh, issued the order uh, to open the camps and uh, spring training would uh, start at that point uh, with the regular players after that fiasco of replacement players that uh, came within I think 48 hours or so of becoming a reality. So this is the first time since then, other than postponements, which, of course, we had most recently in Cleveland when it snowed and they tried (laughs) to open the 2016 season there. We're going to talk about that game and a lot of other opening days. This will be the theme for this first episode of this podcast, opening day, and some of our memories of our favorite and and some of the biggest and best moments in Red Sox history. A little bit later on, I think we'll talk a little bit about what maybe is to come. It's hard to speculate what might happen with all that is changing day to day around us, but I think we we have some things we can speculate on and discuss about what baseball might do uh, down the road. Our plan for this is to do this sort of as – we see fit. I mean, this is not going to be a daily situation, but we want to stay engaged with Red Sox fans. And uh, today of all days is a perfect chance to start that off. You know, Joe, uh, I want to go all the way back. We're going to talk about your first broadcast on air. When when our bosses called me this year to say that I was going to be, along with you and Sean, the voice of the Red Sox, I look forward to this day more than any other on the calendar, having the opportunity to fly north of the border with the team and, and launch this thing. What do you remember of your first on-air big league broadcast in 1983. Actually, that was my first of the Red Sox. My first opening day was 1979 when I was doing Cleveland Television. (laughs) But it's interesting because the pitcher for the Red Sox that day was the same pitcher who was pitching on my Red Sox debut, Dennis Eckersley. He beat Rick Wise in the 1979 game when I was on the Cleveland side. And then in 1983, when I joined Ken Coleman... Uh, X started against Dave Steve. The home opener was at Fenway Park against the Blue Jays. And uh, the hero for Toronto, the villain for the Red Sox, was Rance Mullenix. 
which was interesting because Mullenix always hit Eckersley well, and uh, I believe the previous year, Eck made the comment or asked the question, what's a Rance Mullenix? <laughs> and uh, Mullenix put one in the bullpen, and uh, it was uh, an easy Toronto victory, 7-1, I believe. You know, Joe, you, you have uh, written so many great, eloquent words about your life in baseball and that you learned – basically to read a baseball box score before you learned your ABCs. What was opening day like for you as a kid? Because I know a lot of people in the country are are missing out on baseball today. I know for myself, watching so many Orioles and Cardinals games as a young kid with my dad and grandfather. What As a young kid, what did opening day mean to you? You know what? I don't think it was as big a deal then as it became a little bit later. I uh, look at some of the attendance figures. Even the Yankees would draw eighteen to twenty thousand. They wouldn't sell out opening day, and it was always a day game, and we'd be in school. So I think that was uh, something that uh, maybe took away from the excitement of it. And uh, I, I think it's grown in stature as it's been sort of romanticized over the years. Now, the Red Sox would have begun this year in Toronto. 1983, you talked about it. The the year after, your, your Red Sox tenure, you know, got off to in, in opening days a, a wild start. 84, you rem- that sticks out vividly to you as one of the more brutal losses you ever remember in an opening day. Well, it certainly was. Bruce Hurst spun a beauty. We were in Anaheim, and uh, I remember we to end spring training flew to Colorado. We left Winter Haven on a Saturday morning. Flew to Colorado, played an exhibition game against the Rockies outside of Mile High Stadium. Got on a plane and flew to San Diego. Played one game against the San Diego Padres on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, all within a 12-hour or 18-hour period. And then took a bus after that Sunday game from Anaheim uh, or from San Diego to Anaheim and opened the season at Anaheim with Bruce Hurst pitching. And Hurst was spinning a beauty. He had a one nothing lead, bottom of the ninth inning, two out, bases loaded. Bob Boone, father of the current Yankee manager, hits a ground ball to deep short, and Jackie Gutierrez grabs it cleanly. He bounced the throw to first. It got away from Dave Stapleton. The tying run scored and the winning run scored. And just like that, a crushing two-to-one victory for the Angels. You know, you mentioned Bob Boone. His son is the manager of the New York Yankees. They've had a lot to say in this offseason about the Astros. Bob also works for the Washington Nationals, who, if there's a team that is most upset today, I think it has to be the Nationals, because they would have been in their ballpark receiving their World Series rings and basking in that yeah. joy. Of course, they went to Houston to win the World Series, and, and it is a special thing when you get to come home. You lived that in 05, the, the Red Sox break the curse in St. Louis. And so, in essence, the first moment they get to have a chapel service with their fans and exercise all the demons is that day in 2005, the home opener in the second week of April. I know you remember that day vividly. This is the day people have been anticipating for 86 years. Well, I was thrilled to be on the field to be part of the ceremony. And, of course, you can still uh, have vivid mental pictures of Johnny Pesky helping to raise the flag in center field with Carl Yastrzemski. And uh, what a wonderful moment that was uh, because it hadn't happened since 19 or the I guess opening day of 19 after the 2018 uh, World Series win over the Cubs. 
But it was really a sensational day. And, of course, the Red Sox had already lost the opening game against the Yankees in New York, open on a Sunday night with David Wells pitching uh, as a free agent for the Red Sox. And uh, that season didn't end too well with a three-game sweep by the White Sox, uh, who went on to sweep Houston in the World Series in 05, uh, with Austin, the ALDS to Chicago, in Chicago, uh, two games in Chicago, one at, with Boston. But the opening day of 05 was very special because of the ceremony. And the same goes, especially for 08, because that's when Bill Buckner came hmm. out of the left field wall and uh, greeted the fans and got a tremendous standing ovation. We're even more poignant now that uh, Bill passed away last year. Don't you think, Joe, that right now, this year, baseball is going to have a great opportunity to if and when it's possible to resume, to be a big part of the national fabric, and in fact to be an engine for recovery. I mean, I, I personally think that if it is at all possible, and I was really happy to see what the commissioner said yesterday, talking about that baseball, if it's remotely possible and safe in any way possible, they're going to play these games. They're going to find a way. We might play a lot of double headers. We might condense the season. There might be shorter period to play games, whatever it is. But I think, Joe, that for a sport that, as we talk about all the time on the air, is searching for ways to reinvent itself and to reconnect with fans, I I think out of these storm clouds can come uh, whatever it is, a rainbow. I think baseball can really become a huge part of the national story once again. Which baseball did after 2001, after 9-11, the way uh, they came back with Piazza hitting the winning uh, home run uh, at Shea Stadium uh, for the Mets against Atlanta, and, of course, the World Series uh, with the Yankees and then the great Arizona comeback, a series that stretched into November. And uh, so many great things happened after that uh, resumption of of, baseball baseball i think that it could have a similar type of scenario this year and we hope it does uh however it comes back in what form whether you know we play in front of empty stadiums to start or... which by the way i th- i think it would be great right i mean at this point yeah. when when they mentioned that for the first time 3 weeks ago i thought how weird would that be now nothing in the world sounds better to me than that right i think uh, it would make a lot of sense if you're still worried about uh, close contact that uh, Baseball's become a broadcast sport anyway, a TV sport. That pays most of the freight. I think Gator is about 30% of the revenue. So, I mean, certainly would hurt. It's not ideal. But any way to get it back because not only do we miss baseball, we miss sports. I mean, you every day you look at those uh, listings online or in the newspaper to see what's on TV. Only so many reruns you can watch. I mean, you know, we've both been... We live, by the way, to let our fans in on this. We, I decided to stay down in Florida. You have a home here that you spend the offseason in Fort Myers. And this spring training, I came down uh, and rented the homes of one of your friends in, the, in your neighborhood, basically. We live a block away. And, I, I mean, it is sort of a benefit that people are outside. More people are walking and biking. I mean, that's part of your life anyway, every day, no matter where you are. But uh, there are only so many times you can go for two-hour bike rides, right? I mean, to your point, people need something else to connect with in their lives. And and we've only been in this for, what, two weeks? But I, I think as the days wear on, it's not going to be pressure on baseball and these other sports, but I think there'll be a real urge to crank it back up whenever they can. Yeah, I think if people already have the urge because uh, there's just such a void with no sports. And uh, opening day sort of underscores that, uh, 
And let's hope we do have an opening day sooner than later. <laughs> I reached out to some of our fans, Joe, and at Don Wang said that the one he wanted to hear about from you the most was 1986, when Dwight Evans is facing Jack Morris and hits the first pitch of the season out of the ballpark for a home run. What What are your memories of 86? Well, I do recall the game started at, uh, I believe, 105, so it was ahead of Cincinnati <laughs> by half an hour, an hour. And some of the other traditional openers, the one in Baltimore, but uh, it was the very first game. And now Dwight later admitted that he thought about this all winter. Really? He knew Jack Morris would be pitching. He knew he would be leading off. It was a cold day in Detroit, as you would expect uh, in early April. And uh, he had this in mind, and uh, Ken Coleman had the call. I can still hear his call very vividly. And the ball went over the left center field fence. There was no question it was going out. The Red Sox had a one nothing lead. Uh, what you fans may not remember is Bruce Hurst pitched that game, and uh, the Tigers won it. It was snowing later in the day, and Kirk Gibson, I think, hit two home runs, but I know he hit one to win it late in the game. And uh, the Red Sox lost the opener, and then uh, they Lost the first two, then bounced back to win in a really snowy afternoon game. And, of course, 86 was a great year up until the very end. <laughs> you know, we're not going to have snow at the beginning of the season. We may have snow at the end of the season, Joe. I mean, yeah. there, there are discussions that baseball may be willing to go into November, into December. I would be open to it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Let's say baseball doesn't start till the 1st of July. Everyone's hopeful that it can, it can go before then. But let's say that it just doesn't feel right, and, and the health experts say, you just can't do it. In any capacity, July 1st is the, is the time you start. So you say you want to play 100 games, 120 or 40 games, and stretch it into November. Would you be fine with neutral sites or domed stadiums or, or warm climates for, for a postseason event? I certainly would be. I'd also favor a lot of day games because We're obviously it's warmer in the day. Joe, a lot yeah. of doubleheaders. Maybe a late morning and late afternoon doubleheader. Uh, if it uh, is in the fall when uh, it's turning cold in the evening. But I certainly would be in favor of that. And uh, if neutral sites are not ideal, but if uh, that's what it calls for, fine. A gecko is going up Joe's patio right now. We might get him to do some play-by-play of the They're all here. over, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather see them in St. Petersburg, though, playing no Major kidding. League Baseball. There are usually more lizards in, than people in that ballpark. You know, it's interesting, Joe, the Red Sox, in the years that they've gone on to win the World Series, have not done very well in the last, uh, you know, recent memory here, these last four World Series championships. They've not had a lot of success. Yeah, they're one in three in opening days in World Championship years in this century. In 04, they opened at Baltimore, and that was a controversial game. Terry Francona was a rookie manager with the Red Sox. He had managed the Phillies. His first game as Red Sox skipper. Pedro Martinez started, had a rough game, and uh, the Orioles won it 7-2, and the media found out Pedro actually left the ballpark before the game ended, and there was a controversy, as there always is. <laughs> Francona said it was his fault because uh, – 
he didn't inform Pedro the rule. You have to stay to the game ends. So. Well, that doesn't that isn't that quintessential Tito though, just covering for players and and he understood with Manny and Pedro and so many others that it did him no good to air guys out in the media. And rarely would he even do so in person in the clubhouse. He let that team and all of his teams kind of police themselves. Yeah, and it was an aberration of Pedro as a great team player, and of course had a great year in '04, one game three of the World Series. Uh, his final year, as it turned out with the Red Sox before he signed with the Mets. But that was a a game that really uh, was not very positive from a Red Sox standpoint. Then in 07, the Red Sox opened in Kansas City, and Curt Schilling got shelled. Hmm. Turned out to be the last year he pitched. He got paid for 08, but didn't pitch. Uh, Kansas City won that game 7-1, to despite an Ortiz uh, home run. And, of course, the Red Sox... Uh, Clearly, were the best team in baseball that year. Were practically wire to wire leaders. 2013, the only World Championship year they won the opening game, and that was at New York. I remember the leadoff hitter was Jackie Bradley Jr. playing in left field, and he drew three walks from CC Sabathia. The Red Sox won eight to two behind John Lester. Shane Victorito knocked in three runs in that one, and of course at Tampa Bay in 18. Alex Cora's first game, record-setting year for the Red Sox. Opening day didn't go so well. The Red Sox had the lead going into the ninth, bottom of the eighth inning. And Chris Sale pitched six scoreless innings, but we had a bullpen implosion in that <laughs> one. Uh, the Rays got six in the eighth inning and won it uh, Six to four with Joe Kelly and Carson Smith giving it up. That reminds of another opener at uh, Tampa Bay back in 2003, which was really a crushing defeat. Red Sox had uh, a great performance from Pedro, who was pitching shutout ball. He leaves the game, and that was the year, Theo's first year as GM, the Red Sox decided to go bullpen by committee. Turned out to be a disaster right from the start, and... The Rays rallied, and a guy who uh, later would be with the Red Sox, unfortunately, <laughs> didn't go too well. Carl Crawford hit a walk-off home run off Chad Fox, who had a very short tenure. And uh, that was it. His Tampa Bay won that game. That was a record-setting year for the Red Sox in terms of runs scored and offense. And, of course, that was the year that they went to the seventh game. We all know what happened in extra innings at Yankee Stadium in the American League Championship Series. Uh, so those were those were some of the uh, world champion and uh, playoff teams. You know, Joe, who didn't I, fare so well opening day. One of the things that I, that stands out about opening day, and this is one of the things that people always said about Jack Morris. I mean, how many opening days he got to start on? You, you and I have been here for twenty minutes, and we've already said the name Pedro Martinez four times. I mean, that's what's so fun about this, right? Is that teams spend the entire offseason, and their ace is on the mound. There's a, there's a different magic about that, that the, the best of the best go toe-to-toe. And 1998 is the, the, the introduction for Red Sox Nation to the man that really, Joe, over that year, the next year, and 2000, you could argue had the best stretch of any starting pitcher maybe ever. I mean, Sandy Koufax is in that conversation, but... It, that day in Oakland in 1998 was the day that Red Sox fans met Pedro Martinez. And Pedro didn't disappoint. Three hits, no runs allowed in seven innings, 11 strikeouts, and a 2 nothing win. Then Eckersley came out of the bullpen as a setup guy 
Eck would have been the 43 then, and Thomas Flash Gordon, whose son, of course, plays for Seattle, another son in the twin system, went an inning in the third for the save. He had, uh, I believe, 46 saves that year, Red Sox record. But that was the start of the Pedro era, and to me, the greatest stretch any pitcher has ever had. I mean, Koufax's numbers were spectacular, but Koufax did it in the era of the pitcher, the mid-60s. Pedro did it in the ultimate steroid era for hitters. We've talked a lot about uh, the openers in the years that the Red Sox won World Series. I think memorable in, in its own way, and maybe for some of the wrong reasons, although the game went well is the year after the second in that run. In 2008, you go all the way across the world to the Tokyo Dome, and Brandon (laughs) Moss, of all people, hits a game-tying home run. It turned out that 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 particular trip sent everything south for the Red Sox in 2008. But what do you remember? I mean, what a wild journey to the other side of the earth to open a baseball season. It was a lot of fun. I remember we left Fort Myers on St. Patrick's Day, had a big, huge jumbo jet waiting at... uh, Fort uh, Fort Myers Airport, uh, Southwest Florida Airport. Flew to Chicago where we changed planes, a double-decker plane, and uh, flew over the North Pole. Remember John Henry coming up? We were in the upper level to come and check on uh, us and see the view, and uh, it, it was really uh, a surreal experience. Um, My favorite story about that trip, by the way, Larry Ronan tells all the players and all the staff and everyone, the best thing to do on that flight is to stay awake and hydrate. No alcohol on the plane and stay awake. And Terry Francona says that two hours into the trip, he walks down the aisle and sees two little mini bottles of red wine empty on Larry's tray, and he's dead (laughs) asleep on the plane to Tokyo. I can't say I followed uh, his advice either, Uh, but... uh, we did have those uh, neck pillows that helped some, and uh, the the crew was very nice on the uh, Japanese flight. Uh, we had we had a lot of fun, but we get there, played a couple of exhibition games, and uh, fortunately, Jan and I found an Italian restaurant. I'm not too big on Japanese food. No matter what, what <laughs> corner of the earth you find the the best Italian place, but it was certainly amazing to see Tokyo five times, five different downtowns. It seemed and. You could fit two New Yorks into it. Uh, but it, it was a lot of fun when the game started with the Oakland A's. The Red Sox wound up splitting the two games. And Brandon Moss, as you referred to, in the ninth inning, hit a home run. I believe it's only one, well, one of the few he hit with the Red Sox. He pitch. Swinging a long drive, deep right field. Down the line it goes by the wall, and it is gone. Brandon Moss with his first major league home run has tied the game at four. Can you believe it? The rookie inserted into the lineup because of the injury to J.D. Drew. Drove home the third run in the sixth inning and now launches his first major league home run, golfing a 2-2 pitch into the right field seats over the 328-foot marker. We're tied at four. Went on to hit many more with uh, Oakland and Pittsburgh and other clubs. Uh, Brandon was a very sweet guy. Most polite player I've ever been around. Really? Oh yeah, yes sir. No, it's a real southern gentleman <laughs> from suburban Atlanta. And uh, the Red Sox then won it in the tenth inning on a two-run double by Manny Ramirez. They lost the second game, but uh, it was uh, it was so much fun to uh, see the reaction of the fans and the way they would try to get autographs. They have high walls in Japan, and they would have string or rope and drop 
programs on the on the little road. McCoy Stadium special. Yeah, just like McCoy, and it, it worked very well. Uh, then the Red Sox flew back, and it was it was very good thinking because they went to Los Angeles, where they played the Dodgers at the Coliseum in an exhibition game, and they weren't all in the confines of the makeshift baseball stadium, but there were 114 or so thousand people within the confines of the Coliseum. And uh, Vince Scully was honored on the field. Uh, He was still several years away from retirement, but he was honored on the field because, of course, he had been there doing the first Dodger games when they went west in 1958 to play in the Coliseum. And the thunderous ovation, and when he was finally able to speak... uh, Vince said, it's only me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a lot like Vin. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but he had a very hopeful uh, interview and message the other day about what we're going through together as a country and optimism and hope and the role that baseball can play in it. And I encourage everybody to seek that out. He had a, uh, an interview in the Los Angeles Times, and there's some video and audio of it. And, and Vinny, in the way that only yeah. he could, really was, I thought, quite optimistic and wonderful. Which reminds Jack Buck had a very powerful poem that he delivered when baseball came back after 9-11. And uh, just reading Bud Selig's new book, For the Good of the Game, which is wonderful, and he quotes that uh, word for word, and he has it framed in his home. You know, it, it does – all this controversy that has surrounded the sport, Joe, we talked about the, the Nationals being the, the team that feels the worst today because they get cheated out of their ring ceremony, that that moment will come. Uh, I'm really fascinated by what happens with the Houston Astros because it was a certainty that if things went normally this year, Joe, everywhere they went, they were going to get booed. I mean – it was going to be the number one story in the game, that everywhere they went, the Astros would be booed. Now, I'm really interested to see how that plays out when baseball comes back. Because on the one hand, you could envision a scenario where people say, well, we're just so happy to have this thing back. It feels really weird to be booing a team. But on the other hand, who knows? Maybe, maybe people will say, well, we're, just, I mean, we're not going to change the fact that we're sports fans and we're going we're gonna to get after the Astros just the same. I think what you said first, the former, will be the case that the, it'll take some of the sting out of it. Yeah. I think they'll still get booed and uh, they'll be hit by more pitches than normal. <laughs> but I do think it will take some of the venom out uh, if we do get baseball back this season because uh, – It'll be an uplifting experience when the game resumes. So I, I think it will take some of the heat out of it. You've been around the Red Sox all these years, nearly four decades. This has to be the most disheartening offseason you've ever been a part of, right? I mean, between combination of the scandal, losing a beloved manager, the news of Chris Sale, the trade of Mookie Betts. We do have one more opening day to highlight back at Fenway with the, the Nationals in town. But it, I, I would have to imagine, Joe, that you can't think of an offseason that was uh, more sour than this one. Well, that's true. There's no question about it. And maybe it'll have the reverse effect. That when baseball does come back, we'll have a much better and more positive feeling about things because the game is returned. Right. And it will take some of the sting out of those losses in the off season that certainly uh, cast the pall over spring training when it did start earlier uh, this season. 2015 Mookie Betts, Fenway opener, Nats are in town. 
Great play, steals both second base and third, noticing that a shift was on and the third <laughs> baseman was way off the bag. And Zimmerman's pitch, runner goes again. It's high, here's the throw, the tag, and it is... Oh, he's safe! No one's got him third! Mookie's up! He runs into third! He's safe! He dives in! <laughs> the pitcher took the throw and did not get him! Boy, you talk about a start to the home season for Mookie Betts. The great catch to save a two-run homer in the outfield. And now he steals them blind, taking not just second but third. And we can talk about that game, but I, I think it's better, Joe, to talk about your memories of Mookie because you watched every game he played in a Red Sox uniform, and he was a marvel. He was a meteor. And there are so many people listening to this throughout New England and throughout the world who just can't imagine the Red Sox without Mookie Betts. What, what do you think of when you think about Mr. Betts? Well, I think of a five-tool player, but more than that, I think of a guy who played the game with a smile and uh, made it look so easy, and a guy who was never satisfied either. I mean, we'd have him on post-game shows after. He always found something on which he felt he could improve, although he was pretty close to being a perfect player when you uh, look at the overall scope of things. Uh, but the joy he had for the game, and uh, and I'm sure will continue to have, uh, the smile and uh, and the ability. I mean, just the, to do it seemingly uh, so smoothly. Uh, obviously, it was a tremendous effort. He worked very hard at it. But he didn't look like he was ever pressing. It looked like he just came so naturally to him. It's It's amazing when you think about it. You hear all these fathers saying how hard it was for them the day that the trade went official with the Dodgers to wake up the next morning and explain to their kids how it is possible that their favorite player, and you know that of all the Red Sox, I mean, a lot of people love J.D. Martinez and Jackie and Vasquez and definitely Bogart's endeavors, but come on, Joe. I mean, Mookie, uh, amongst especially the younger portion of our fan base, he's number one in their hearts. Well, certainly it's the same as if Carl Yastrzemski had the uh left in the early 70s or Ted Williams. Uh, it's very tough to explain to youngsters, and we know what the obvious stated reasons were, whether they thought he was going to leave or uh, competitive uh, luxury tax situation, which uh, may or may not have been the bottom line. We don't know, but uh, it it is tough to explain from a baseball standpoint, but you know, it's a game today dictated more than ever by finances because the stakes are so high. The thing that I keep coming back to, Joe, is that uh, you can talk whatever you want about the PR message, which I think, you know, it ha has drawn some maybe justified criticism about the way that it was packaged, just the way that it was explained, frankly, to the fan base. But I do think that say what you will about the turnover in management uh, under this ownership group. But first of all, they won four World Series in 15 years. And second of all, Every time something like this happens, it is not long at all before they make another massive investment in free agency and in their player pool. There's no question, right, Joe, that this group has a track record proven that they are going to open the wallets and soon. No question about it. Four and 15 years has to be the bottom line uh, when you uh, grade this ownership. And uh, they certainly get an A-plus. No one else's baseball has done it. No one else has won for this century. And you have to remember that. They, 
they have always spent to produce a winner, and I believe that that's still first and foremost uh, in their thinking and in their direction, and that we'll be right back there uh, the next time, uh, whether it's a free agent or whether it's for a trade of somebody uh, who certainly would be a high payroll type who's available, uh, that won't stop them. They'll, they'll come through with it. A year after Mookie's double steal in 2015, David Ortiz, he had announced that this would be his final season. And in Cleveland, a day after a snow out, uh, he hits an enormous go-ahead home run to kind of seal a win for the Red Sox in the ninth inning in Cleveland. You know, we saw Big Poppy. Doesn't it feel to you, Joe, like it was two years ago? It was basically three weeks ago that he was around JetBlue. I know he took pictures with your grandkids and and, uh, you know, he was himself and, and everything that, that everybody in Boston has loved about Big Poppy. But uh, amazing to think that now we're looking at, what, f- four years ago was his final opening day with the Red Sox. And, you know, he never really uh, had a slide at the end of his career. He was still performing at the top level. He had a lot of uh, pain and issues with his feet and uh, his uh, his legs. But he never had that slump. And he really went out on top of the the world. And, you know, the 2016 home run, of course, was so typical of Big Poppy. The 2-2. Swing. There's a line drive to right field. This is deep. Way back it goes by the fence and gone a home run. David Ortiz hits number one in the opening day of his last season. He lined it just to the right of the 375-foot marker, about two rows back. Marlon Burgess turned and watched it sail away as the Red Sox now lead it 6-2. to two. So I think he, he really wore down at the end because of all the ceremonies and the emotion involved there. But he never would, had a slide where he wasn't a productive hitter. No, I mean, just a remarkable finish to his career. So we hope, Joe, that, uh, you know, that baseball can come back as soon as possible, that uh, – People do the right thing, that this thing gets curbed a little bit, and that when the time is right, there's another spring training. We've heard, by the way, you and I both have, that if that happens, it's more likely that any kind of a second spring training would take place at Fenway Park, which I think makes a lot of sense, where all the players have started to make plans to make their in-season homes in Boston. And so if there were, whatever it is, 10 days, two weeks, is that what you would think would take to get guys ramped up? Well, you know, regulars get ready in four or five days, but it's the pitchers. And uh, they were starting to amp up to get ready for the season, but obviously there's a setback there. You can't simulate. And by the way, I think that's a big question. Noah Syndergaard is going to have Tommy John. I, that that could, unfortunately, Joe, be a story of this season in that as the, the, the routine and that gentle acceleration to the season is interrupted, who knows? Pitcher injuries could be a big part of the story of this year. Yeah, I think you'll have to expand the rosters and uh, maybe – by more than three or four, to have more pitchers. Uh, be Obviously, you want to start the season as soon as you can, and if that means having you know, a 30 or 32-man roster with 15 or 16 pitchers, it's well worth it than waiting. Uh, and you know, it'll be up to managers and pitching coaches and the pitchers themselves to be very careful in terms of uh, their physical well-being. I think our fans would really like just kind of a personal update because everybody right now, Joe, if there's any positive in this, it is that, uh, you know, the human spirit kind of perseveres and that people are finding ways to connect. 
We hope that uh, this podcast, as often as we can do it, can be a part of that re-engagement with people. Tell our fans who have grown to love and know your voice throughout New England how life is for you and your lovely wife, Jan, and what what day-to-day looks like in Florida without baseball. (laughs) It's very strange. I mean, you try to uh, fill your day with uh, meaningful activities and – Probably be in better shape than I've been in many years. Seriously. Be outside biking and swimming laps. And uh, you can't go to the gym. That's off limits. But we found some home exercises. Um, And, you know, you get to know your neighbors a lot better. We're very fortunate to have uh, you and your lovely wife, Jen, and your son, Bailey, here uh, to uh, infuse some youth. Because even if we were back in Boston, the... my doctor's son would not allow us to go face-to-face no. with our no. grandchildren. We stay a safe quarantine. distance, but it's great. But you'll hear my son on the intro to this podcast at some point because his favorite phrase now is Mr. Joe and Miss Jan. <laughs> he just loves it, and it's been a real treat to kind of just have time. We want to play baseball. We want to call games. We want to be out on the road again. But uh, it's been fun to at least uh, have a neighbor and be down the street, and we hope we can do this a lot more often. Yeah, that's been a blessing, uh, Will. We look forward to a great season with you. Uh, I feel your disappointment. I've had uh, this would be my 38th opener with the Red Sox, and uh, the first time you would have done play-by-play on opening day and travel with a club north, uh, although you, of course, were with us last year for many games. But I know the excitement uh, that you felt. And I hope, you know, that's the disappointment's only temporary and that uh, you'll be back and enjoying that real thrill uh, that you just can't duplicate very, very soon. Don't you feel, Joe, that when it returns, it'll be like when baseball came back from 9-11? I mean, I think it's... It's a different level than returning from a you know, a strike, which is kind of a human creation. I think that for the players, I think they'll be more open to access. I think fans will be more appreciative. I know from a, a broadcaster perspective, I will never care about pace of play, time of game, any of that sort of stuff. I, I just feel like there's a chance that it'll be as emotional a broadcast. That first one, and hopefully going forward, will be as emotional a game as you could ever do. I anticipate it. Uh... <laughs> and I uh, just can't wait for it to happen. Uh, I think it will. I think you're right. Uh, we will really appreciate this game even more. And, uh, you know, you think of uh, some of the history, uh, how baseball has helped. We mentioned 9-11. You think of 1942 and the famous green light letter that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States, wrote to Judge Landis, the commissioner, saying that, I honestly think the best thing for the country would be for baseball to continue because there were certainly uh, many thoughts of canceling the entire season during World War II, uh, especially that first year after Pearl Harbor. But baseball persevered. The quality wasn't as good, but the game was still there. Um, I think that uh, that same anticipation, that same feeling will be prevalent when we do get baseball back. We're going to re-air some World Series games on WEEI. You and I will discuss a lot of those. That will be a topics of some of our podcasts. And just as things come up, as news is 
out there in baseball. Certainly, if and when a season resumption is announced, we'll get into that. But uh, it's been a pleasure, Joe. Thanks for uh, welcoming me onto the the lanai, and uh, looking forward to a great many more of these. Well, thank you. Well, look forward to working uh, many games with you this season. Let's hope it's sooner than later. No question <laughs> about that. The geckos are still around. We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. This has been the first episode of Extended Spring. Everybody, stay safe, stay home, and we'll talk to you soon. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.